1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
0: I'm thrilled to be talking today with Ellen Moore, author of Grateful Nation, Student Veterans, and the Rise of the Military-Friendly Campus, published by Duke University Press in 2017. Dr. Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you were born, went to school, sort of your life outside of this one book? Sure. I was born um, on the Army base. At the time, it was called uh, Fort Lewis. Now, it's Fort lewis McCord outside of Seattle, actually in Tacoma, Washington. My father was in the Army at the time, and so I was born on an Army base and then the early years of my life were spent on different army bases around the country as my father got transferred to different places. But I spent most of my time growing up in the North Bay in the Bay Area in Northern California. Um, so that was my sort of early schooling and growing, and growing up. Uh, I went to uh, different colleges. Colleges, College didn't really stick for me until until the end. I went to like three different Colleges. I went for a while to University of California at Berkeley as an undergrad, went for a while to a college in Washington State as an undergrad, and finally uh, finished my undergrad uh, education at San Francisco State University. Um, I then went on to have a career in social work. I uh, went back to school to UC Berkeley to get my doctorate in Social and Cultural Studies of Education which leads us to where we are. Oh, my other life outside of the book, I um, have two daughters, one in college right now and one in in high school, and I have a husband, and we live in the Bay Area. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, and, and let's talk about the book now, Grateful Nation. Um, how did you get the initial idea for this book? Well, when I was uh, researching, I was researching um, different ways people learn as a as a doctoral student in education, and I was going to events on campus, and I heard this alarming statistic that said that 96% of all veterans who, all uh, military enlistees sign up for the GI Bill, and of those, less than 8% were using their benefits, and I was extremely alarmed by this statistic. On its face, it seemed quite unjust that I knew that many people, my, my own father included, signed up for, enlisted in the military in part for educational benefits. And the fact that they weren't able to use those was deeply disturbing to me. And as a student of education and anthropology, I wanted to find out why that was. What was getting in the way of returned veterans um, not being able to access their GI Bill benefits and not being able to graduate? So I was concerned about that. So that's what I started out doing in this. What I started out to do was to think about what might get in the way. And my first hypothesis was perhaps it was the difference in training. So the first part of my research was on military training and trying to understand how people learn as they learn to become military members, not not just combatants, but members of a military corpus. So that's what I was looking at in the beginning. And then I was looking at their experience on college campuses and what would Help them succeed on campus and what might impede their progress and so what did your research for the book entail? It, I was I started out by just doing ethnographic observation. On, I chose two different campuses. one was a, um, a community college in rural California, and one was a research university in urban California and I thought that both of those sites would give me insight into the very different circumstances that veteran student veterans found themselves in so i was looking at different sites and spending a lot of time on campus uh observing classes observing public events on campus and then uh having in-depth interviews that often were uh up to 4 hours long i mean at with breaks and with at the with the consent of the interviewees, but we just had these really long conversations, interviews, semi-structured interviews that turned into um, just long ethnographic conversations. And then once you've gathered all of that material, how do you start? What, what does the writing process look like for you? Well, because the, the i I consider the heart of this book and the heart of my research to be the interviews with the veterans um, I sort of started there. I started with what they were telling me about their experience in the military and their experience on college campuses so in that sense, I think that there's there's some grounded theory methodology in, involved in this because I started out studying one thing and ended up <laughs> ended up with a, a another focus, an additional focus. So my process was to do these very, very in-depth interviews, sometimes over the course of several days. And um, then transcribing the, the interviews, I started out doing that myself, which was incredibly <laughs> time-consuming, but also incredibly fruitful because I got to really engage again with the material. And, and it transcribing the interviews myself is both, well, it's at once, it's um, intimate because you're really, really hearing the words, you're hearing the inflections, you're hearing different things than you experienced during that live interview. But at the same time, it's very tedious and, and time consuming. So, but with that process, starting out with that, with the transcription and the revisiting those, those conversations, I was really able to kind of hear beyond what they were saying, but also hear their inflections, hear the affect that was coming through. Um, often it was really clear this affect of either pain or anger. Um, so I would transcribe the interviews, go over the data, and see patterns that emerge from, from that. Um, well, for example, when I was hearing one of the explanations in the beginning about veterans' challenges on campuses, I kept hearing this ex- explanation of that that um, college campuses were anti-military and there was somehow this this anti-military sentiment that was off-putting to veterans or are actively pushing them off campus. That was created a, a sort of disconnect for me because I was not observing that at any of the campuses that I visited. I, I did in-depth research on two campuses, but then visited many more campuses at, at, you know, seven, eight other campuses that I went specifically to examine this. And I wasn't finding that college campuses were anti-military. I was actually finding the opposite, that veterans were actively, on, either actively welcomed on campus or sort of ignored or seen as just students. So not maliciously ignored, but sort of benign, benign, you know, benignly <laughs> ignored. Um, so, So that was the process when I was talking to veterans and sort of trying to square what they said with my own observations and what I was reading in the printed literature. Through that process, I kind of came up with this other analysis about what I think is getting in the way of veterans' success on campus. And then, uh, just because I'm always interested in this, just so we can picture it, when, you, when you're sitting down to write this book, where are you? Are you at the kitchen table, in an office, a coffee shop? Like Where, where do you do your, your writing for the book? So I was very fortunate to be a fellow at what's called the Slow Science Institute. It's a group of scholars started by the educational anthropologist uh, Jean Lave. It's a group, it's an office, or it takes place in a loft, and we all gather um, from different disciplines, social scientists from different disciplines, and we have projects, scholarly projects that we're working on. So we're in this big loft, we each have a desk. We each have a computer and we work on our, um, our individual projects pretty much in silence. I, I'm not one of those people that can write in a, you know, with background ambient noise. So we work in silence, but we work together. We're all together. And then we stop at lunchtime and those of us that can take a break in our work join in at like a communal lunch. So we talk about our ideas. We discuss our different projects. We ask each other questions and get feedback on our work and then we go back to work in the afternoon. So that was the first, after I completed my research, that's where I I went to do the initial writing. Towards the end, I had other jobs that kind of got in the way of that process. And then I just wrote at the kitchen table. Then I did, you know, or I did weekend writing. But um, the bulk of the book was written at the Slow Science Institute. Wow, the Slow Science Institute sounds ideal. It sounds so much more civilized and communal than my experience of the writing process usually is. I think it's definitely uh, it's a move towards more kind of human, scholarly, slow, slow thinking. You know, and deep analysis. That's it's a conscious effort That's wonderful. to create deep analysis at interdisciplinary and collegial. Well now let's let's turn to the book itself. So part of your argument is that American society today is deeply militarized and and not just in broad economic and political terms, but in our everyday domestic social worlds as well. And and I wondered if you could sort of explain that for our listeners. Sure. I think that mil- militarization happens um not just during times of war, but we actually are in a war. <laughs> In several wars right now, this country is involved in um, around the globe. But militarization happens in sort of daily. Can happen in daily interactions, in daily uh, daily messages that we receive, or daily um, icons that we're, we're taught to read. Let, let me see how I can can explain this better. Um, we are we are used to thinking, I think, in this country, of ourselves as a power. Um, a, a, a superpower. We are a superpower, and um, but the way that the way that we I'm going to stop here for a second, okay. And hopefully we can edit this out. Okay. So militarization of everyday life just means that we we understand the military's place in the. United States as sort of a, a naturalized part, and we we have come to I think understand the use of force throughout the world as a naturalized process in this country so when if we are sending arms to to Yemen or if we are s- somehow encouraging military strikes anywhere or participating in military strikes anywhere if that's seen as a natural and necessary part of being a nation, and I think that that is a is a pretty new understanding for us that it's not in times past when the United States has actively been involved in military conflicts. There, at other times in the country, there has been more discussion, more public discussion. One example is well, in World War II, the, there was a national effort to support the war, but people were actively involved in that actively involved in thinking about what was going on, actively debating what we do as a country and why we were there rationales for that different different conflicts have different um, either social support or social levels of social discourse around it during the Vietnam War, as we know, it was a highly contested conflict, so There were people that really did not agree with the U.S. participation in the war or the rationale for the war, and there were people that really did agree with that. But there was a debate. I mean, people were talking about this. What I find now with the current conflicts is that there is not much debate. I mean, it's just taken as a given that the United States needs to be involved in armed conflicts throughout the world. And that is a different situation. That is different than any other time in history. And I argue in the book that Part of what enables that naturalization of military processes is an absence of discussion about the wars and about the U.S. military role in the world. And I further argue that that absence of discussion or that silencing of discussion is enabled by a, a discourse or an understanding that war veterans or military veterans in our society need to, be, need to require this silence about the wars because to to voice dissent about the wars would be interpreted by the veterans themselves as disrespect towards their service and towards their sacrifice, so it's a fairly complicated argument that I make, but I but that's that's what it is basically in a nutshell that that there is a silence about the current wars and a naturalization of military involvement throughout the world that is enabled um, by by an understanding that to to talk critically about the wars or to examine the rationale of the wars is to disrespect the veterans, to conflate the interests of the veterans with the interest of the U.S. military and to, to enable a silence about talking about the wars. Well and you note this really interesting paradox that civilian life have, has become increasingly militarized even as the numbers of soldiers and veterans declines as fewer and fewer Americans actually have a personal connection to the military as an institution that's that's true that is absolutely true one of the one of the ways that this sort of silence is enabled is is the fact that with the voluntary um, conscript well, with the lack of <laughs> conscription, I mean, when the draft was abolished and it became a, a choice to join the military or not, um, well, some would say it's a coerced cho- choice, but it, it, there was no conscription. And so fewer and fewer people were opting into into the military, opting to serve. And so there was this this, there is a big disconnect, less than 1% of of people sign up for the military in this country, and so fewer people are actually engaged in this um, institution and in the, the practices of of military um, power. And yet, there is there is a a great um, so there is a divide that people are feeling like they're not personally connected to the military, and yet there is an idea that um and i believe that there is a growing militarization in abstentia sort of we're we're not we're not participating with hands on or personal understanding of it but we are um we're relying on messages coming to us about veterans and about the military with absent a, a personal connection to it to help the reader understand how we got to this contemporary point in terms of the experience of, of students veterans that you document in your book you offer a brief history of veterans and higher education. And and I wondered if you could give us a quick overview of that. Sure, sure. Um, The GI, well, what's commonly known as the GI Bill started out after World War II when there was a recognition that veterans coming home from, military members coming home from war needed and deserved some some helped re-enter society and so a whole it came at the end of the the sort of new deal understanding or as part of the new deal consciousness that the government should and could support people you know sort of to um have have a a good start in life and that there, there was a place for the public sector to support people in terms of housing in terms of education in terms of um, bank loans, things like that. So there was this understanding, it was sort of a Keynesian understanding that the government did have a crucial role. The public sector did have a crucial role in um, supporting people as they came. And so the the veterans, the GI Bill was um, had to do with housing loans, that veterans could come back and get low interest housing loans. They had more access to education. They had ed- access to free education. And um College education, and that was responsible for some of the some of the largest numbers of veterans going to college. It enabled veterans to go to college and then to complete college. There was a lot of support for that, and there was public support for this idea that that is a legitimate role of the government to help people to who wouldn't otherwise have a chance to go to college. It was sort of seen as a very equalizing equalizing role of the government. To play, democratizing role, and so that was that was an important first template of what um, the the government could do to help veterans get an education, a college education. So, following that, um, there were different iterations after the Vietnam War when when veterans came back from the Vietnam War. There was not a similar there was not a similar consensus that that. The U.S. government. I mean, there was. Um, let me try to think of a, a good way to say this. Well, veterans coming back from the Vietnam War were not received with the same kind of uh, consensus of approbation from the general population as as um, World War II veterans. I can say that. And also, the idea of the Great Society had sort of waned. I mean, the idea that this was an appropriate role for government to subsidize or wholly or partially subsidize social services for people was um, coming out of, becoming out of favor. And so with that, the GI Bill became less robust, became sort of eroded after the Vietnam War. So Vietnam veterans had uh, fewer resources devoted to them as did the World War II veterans. So there's been changes in the GI Bill itself, but what didn't change was this idea that veterans deserved some extra help, you know, in terms of education, housing, um, when they returned from war. A, a big difference uh, in this was that um, after the Vietnam War, conscription was abolished. And so education and the GI Bill became a an sign and recruitment incentive. So to get people to join the military, that was recruiters definitely talked a lot about college education and that there became a An idea that this was the bargain that you go to war, you sign up to go to war, you sign up to join the military to get an education. So that was, that is a crucial part of the starting point of this book is that over time, the GI Bill has become less of an entitlement and more of a recruitment signing bonus. And so when that was the, that's how the GI Bill was used in many, many recruitment efforts, it seemed like an incredible injustice that veterans weren't actually able to make good on that promise when they got back.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50%
0: off. Well, and in your book, when, when you turn to the experiences of these student veterans today, you, you, you do an interesting thing. I like how you sort of start at the individual level and then move out. So in the first chapter, you start with that individual process of going through basic training. Um, so I thought maybe could you speak a bit to how basic training goes about turning civilians into soldiers? And I just want to say the reason that I started that way is because that follows the my research process. I had thought that at first I would look at training to become a military member and then the supposed untraining or the training to become a student after that. So I was looking at those individual processes. And in the course of studying that, I, I saw these social processes, the bigger, the larger scale processes happening. And so the, the, path of the book follows the path of my research. Um, going from the individual to the social process. I just had to say that. Um, so when I looked at how civilians become soldiers, um, I studied basic training as the core experience because that is the, the point at which it's decided there is a process to untrain the civilian or to to take the civilian out of their habitus or how they have been living and consciously place them in a corpus and train them to be in a corpus and to act in concert with other people to conceptualize themselves as as a person involved in a mission and mission, um, mission supersedes the idea of mission supersedes the idea of individuality and individual. There are very specific processes that are involved in Basically, untraining the civilian and and creating the soldier identity and the soldiering practices or um, military practices. So I was looking at basic training, and I had to rely on on the veterans themselves to. But they were pretty recently separated from the military, so recently discharged. So I think that the the memories were were fairly fresh. But I found that the memories, even if with time, they were indelible. I mean, this this was a period of life for most of the people I spoke with. That was indelible. It was embodied. It was hard won. It was very the lessons of basic training. I found were by and large very difficult. Very um, in some cases traumatic, but in in all cases endured. The lessons of basic training endured in one way or another, either either by the way they structured the veterans and the students' subsequent lives and, and identities or through the rejection of that. I mean, I saw both of those things. They were an embodied, intensely embodied experience and, uh, intensely consequential for the, for the student veterans. So I started the first chapter by looking at those processes. What happens? How do, how do, how do people become trained in a completely different way of thinking and Acting, and um, and what does that, what psychologically and sort of physically, what effects does that have on on people as they go through that training process? Well, and then you go on to talk about how when veterans arrive on college and university campuses, their experiences that that you describe in military training and combat conflict, in some ways, um, those things conflict. With what is expected of them in academic life and and that can be part of what makes for a difficult transition uh, can you give us some examples of how this works absolutely um and i they do sometimes so the way that people are trained um, in basic training and in military practice basic training sort of lays the template for for behaviors and identities and then throughout their military service, it's reinforced for a much longer period of time. So it becomes kind of ingrained. As one veteran said, it's, it becomes a, a mindset and then it becomes a lifestyle. So in, you know, in his mind, what he was talking about was he learned certain ways to act and also certain ways to respond um, affectively and respond emotionally and psychologically to ideas of threat and ideas of the Unknown, so I will be um, more specific in basic training one of the the processes that is used is sort of i would say group punishment for individual infractions, and you know there's there's a certain amount of phys- physical um, there's physical consequences to mistakes or or a learning curve mistake, for example, if one makes a mistake with either uniform or um, not getting the the lock on the locker done, right. The whole platoon or the whole squad can be subject to what's called smoking. So, you know, doing, doing pushups, you know, 100 hundred pushups, hundreds of pushups. So the, the group punishment for individual infractions becomes definitely a, a psychological threat to people. I mean, people are on the, on the lookout for that. Um, there is, there is a, um, uh, you know, that becomes a, a difficult learning process that people hold on to. So there is a lot of embodied kind of reward and punishment system in military training. But And when people get to the university, um, this idea of hierarchy is still there, but it's, I, I argue it's much more covert in the university. There's, there's a very strict rank system in the military that, that there's punishments attached to not adhering to the strict rank structure, addressing somebody by the incorrect title um, can result in punishment. Um, not, Not wearing the uniform correctly results in punishment. So there's a lot of very strict rules that are enforced strongly and consistently. And then when people come to the university, people are rewarded for almost the opposite. They're rewarded for independent thought. They're rewarded for um, questioning authority. People are, re- in, in some, I'm, I'm making a broad generalization. I am talking about the, uh, the, the institutions that I observed, but there is a sort of overall sort of different way of thinking about the world that critique is seen as a, a good thing or something that can propel conversation and propel theory. Forward with critique of the old, and um, so a lot of that's come to campus. Really trained in in not just following orders, but not stepping out of line, flying under the radar is what people told me a lot. You know, you don't you don't distinguish yourself because if you distinguish yourself negatively, you get punished. If you distinguish yourself positively, you get punished in as a as a reward as a quote unquote reward because you get more duties put on you if you distinguish yourself if you show yourself to be super competent, then you get more duties. So there's this sort of idea that you just, you do what you're told to do and you do it, you do it well and you do it honorably, but you do it, um, what you're told to do. So that's the message that I got from many of the vets that they learned how to do this, you know, uh, under duress. And so coming to college campuses, when the rules were not written, I mean, that's one thing about the military is that they give you rule books, they tell you what is expected. And you're, you know, there's not a lot of sort of finding your way and trial and error, and you decide what what works for yourself. And I would I would argue that on many college campuses, that is the, that's the default position is that you are there to sort of learn, but nobody really tells you What is expected? You're sort of supposed to know this, and it works much better for students in the university that are coming from college prep, you know, high schools and even elementary schools. That there is a way of learning that is um, individually driven and intrinsically motivated, and so I think that those things are taught as well, but they're not acknowledged as much. So there is there can be a disconnect of of learning styles when people get, and learning histories when people get to the university. Um, a specific example can be, um, uh, there's a, uh, someone who I call Cody, who returned from Iraq. He did, he did a tour of Iraq. He was in the Navy, but he was, in the, um, he was assigned in Iraq to guard a camp, a prison camp. And so he, one of the lessons that he learned that was in no <laughs> rule book or in no curriculum, was that he should mistrust everybody, and that at any point, anybody could become the enemy, and anybody could become a lethal threat. And that was one of the the lessons that he learned in war, is and especially in a counterinsurgency war and in in a, um, a war where one didn't know who the enemy was. So Cody, when Cody came back to his community college in California, that the college classroom for him became a very threatening place. He didn't um, he didn't know who these people were that were sitting next to him in class. He was constantly on he was hyper vigilant. He was constantly on the alert for attack coming from anywhere, any unknown any unknown quarters. So he was, um, I mean, he was clearly experiencing post traumatic stress symptoms in the classroom. He had been trained to always be on guard against evil attack. And he couldn't, I mean, he asked me, how do you untrain that? How do you get rid of that? Um, and I think that's a really excellent question that we all have to ask ourselves if we're going to send people to, to wartime, to combat situations. So for Cody, it was really difficult. He was flooded. He became flooded with, um, sensory input he was always trying to see who was behind him who was in front of him who might be a threat he was evaluating you know he was always had a hierarchy of of threat going on in his head he would see a, a petite female in the class and figure that they wouldn't be as threatening but um, he would see a, you know he just had his own his own hierarchy of threat who he considered to be a potential lethal threat so that was that that was going on in his mind all the time, and it made him very di- made it very difficult for him to function in the classroom. And he just became overwhelmed with feelings of his own failure. I mean, he he's a very bright young man. He knew he was a bright young man. He joined the military so he could have money for college, and then he was in college and he was not able to function, um, and that was extremely frustrating for him. And he I mean I, I want to say that many of these stories that I have in the book, I would love to do a follow up on all of them because these are these are challenges but they're not determinative challenges for example Cody through through sticking it out and through having to drop out for a time and having to find a way to communicate with his professors and let let them know what was going on, which was also difficult for him, but through proper support and through understanding that this was a new phase of his life, and through psychological help, he's now on his way to to going to med school. that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a doctor and so the 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 cautionary tale that I put out in the book is is a partial tale it is a, it is a moment in time, and I found that many of the the student veterans that I talked to are still finding their way in the in the university or college and are still proceeding with their their plans, and so while I talk, while I paint a picture that is, I think, is their experience in that moment. It's not determining ultimately of their success or failure. I, I well, and say your that. book really demonstrates that many colleges and universities are aware of, of some of these challenges. Maybe not the exact nature of them, but they're certainly cognizant of the fact that student veterans might need additional or different kinds of support. Than non-veteran students do. And so one of the things you do in your book is you look at the veteran support services that are offered on two different college campuses and sort of look at what's offered and also how it's offered. So could you tell us a bit about what do these support services tend to look like? Um, what kinds of programs and, and support tend to be offered? Sure. So and Veteran support services is a constantly evolving field. And I should say that when I started this research at one of the campuses in 2010 or 2009, 2010, there was nothing on campus. And so that was the picture that I saw then. By the time I I did my last visit there, I think in 2013, they had a veterans club, they had a veteran space on campus. It evolved. It's evolving, you know, fairly rapidly, I would say. I think some are arguing that there's that it's um, going backwards now that there's, it's not in the public consciousness that the amount of support is is decreasing. But what I found in my period of research is that there was consciousness building around the needs of veterans. And so different campuses were increasing their services and adapting their services. Um, what I found on the different campuses is that often veteran support was framed in a way that, that implied a certain idea Ideology, or there were certain ideological or philosophical underpinnings that um, about veteran support. Some some common sense understandings, for example, that veteran support services built on positive identifications with the military um, would be more effective than veteran support services that didn't automatically include positive valoration of the military institution. So I found that debate going on a lot. It wasn't so much a debate as it was an assumption that to have effective veteran support services, one had to develop them around a positive identification with the military institutions. And that, that assumed uh, a unitary understanding of what being a military member meant. So that there, and what I found in my research is that they're very highly um, differing understandings of the military institution and people's experience in the military institutions. And and people had very different um, levels of affiliation and identification with the military. Some people left, some student veterans wanted to leave all of that behind. They disagreed with the military mission. They felt a, a certain amount of um, regret and remorse about what they did during the wars. Some felt that they really wanted to um, Identified with the military and were pr- were proud of that and wanted to be honored for that on campus. So there was a very different different levels of affiliation and identification felt by the veterans, but but most of the services were built around the assumption that all veterans positively identified with their military experience, and so to best serve them, one needed to to suture a positive military narrative with. The veteran student veterans' needs, and I found that that didn't work all the time i mean it didn't people told veterans told me student veterans told me privately that um, that it was alienating for some of them they didn't they didn't want to be on campus as representatives of the u s military or of the u s military projects or conflicts abroad. They wanted actively to distance themselves for that, so that was something that I found you know in no way did it speak to i think bad motives on the on the ha- part of service providers and that's something that I feel like I always want to say is that the service providers that I met on campuses were were uniform in their wanting to help veterans so that the the impulse to help veterans and the desire to help veterans and help them succeed on campus was always there it was just the way that these services were conceived and carried out that were sometimes problematic for the veterans themselves. And I think that service providers didn't often look at those, um, the services critically to understand what, what might be helpful and what might be harmful. And I thought one of the interesting examples that you discuss about that is, is for example, the prohibition on political speech at meetings and, and events um, for veterans. Right? There was sort of a, a narrative that, oh, we don't we don't talk politics here. But but you point out, based on your observations, that that was actually selectively enforced. So if a veteran wanted to celebrate a battle that the U.S. had just won, then that was fine. But if a student veteran wanted to question whether a war was justified or to be more critical of the military, then that was shut down as unwelcome, quote, political talk. And, and I can imagine that that created a difficult space for student veterans who who wanted to be able to speak and to listen to conversations like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Political speech was defined as as. Uh, talk that, you know, might critique the wars or critique their role in the military. So that was seen as political speech. And otherwise, um, you know, talking about a, a certain battle or, or celebrating um, certain weaponry, that was not considered political. That was considered life. And that's an example of the militarization of daily life. That's an example of just naturalization of of speech that to talk about, to critique a military conflict is considered political. To raffle off, for example, a, a semi-automatic weapon at a Marine's ball is not considered political. So that that is um, that was very much in evidence uh, in the services on college campuses. That there was a regulation of speech, not from the university itself, but but it was sort of fostered in the sort of valorization of military ideology. It was it was normalized and accepted. And, and the students themselves, many of them that really were aligned with the some of the veterans clubs, took that up, took that identity up and took that, that understanding that this was their place on campus to be representatives of the military and to foster that military identification. And the understanding that that would help student veterans succeed on campuses if there was a strong military identified group that consistently proposed those things and um along with it th- that that would help student veterans and i found that not to be the case uniformly not to be the case in in all all times for all veterans um there is the idea that um i know that military members are told that they are they are not political people they are just supposed to follow orders and do the job that that their superiors tell them to do so there is a kind of inculcated idea no we're not political But the the lack of sort of understanding and expanding what the implications of um, speech and actions are, that there are political implications to things. And the sort of shutting down of that kind of critical examination is what created a a disconnect for many veterans, student veterans on campus. And I would argue veterans in, in the broader society as well. Well, and you describe interesting ways that this moves beyond just the spaces of of veteran support services. Um, These different ways that you show how the idea of supporting student veterans has become conflated with uncritical support for the military as an institution. And I was especially struck by your description of a sensitivity training session you attended that was intended to educate community college instructors on how to better teach and support student veterans. And you described that during the training, instructors were taught to identify different kinds of weaponry, whether rocket propelled grenade launchers or M16 automatic rifles, and to distinguish between the battle cries of the Army and Marines. And, and then we're then divided into groups to, to practice those battle cries. And as I'm, I'm reading that as an educator, I, I just couldn't figure out how exactly that could possibly make an instructor a more effective or empathetic teacher. The two things, there didn't seem to be a direct connection between them for me. And I was curious how it came to be that supporting veterans started to mean celebrating the military itself as an institution. You know, I don't, I, I think that I can't fully answer that question because that wasn't exactly my study. But what I, what I did um, observe is that there were some Early few representatives of military veterans on campuses that were looked to were were sought out to lay out a template. And what I saw was that this this idea that sensitivity to veterans' issues was sutured to you know learning the outward accoutrement of military life and valorizing the outward accoutrement of military life and sort of. I would argue the mystification of military life that that to know to distinguish an RPG, you know, rocket launcher um, or grenade launcher um, versus a semi-automatic rifle um, that that does not sensitise us to the daily realities and the needs of veterans. So. How did this happen? I think it's because uh, some people early on were looked to to design services and perhaps that's what they thought would be maybe that's what they felt would help them learn. And so that was what was um, developed as the as the kind of training to do and that became considered best practice and that was disseminated throughout the country. So there is a template of best practices that includes these kind of sensitivity trainings. I if I were to design sensitivity trainings and you know with my experience as both a therapist and also just a, a social worker in the world, I would start out with finding out people's experience and how they viewed these um, institutions of the military and how they viewed their their experience in the military to really assess what would help them and rather than assuming that valorizing practices and valorizing weaponry and learning the the weaponry would sensitize people to being able to teach veterans because they're very different endeavors sort of surviving combat and participating in combat or even participating in non-combat military institutions is very different than um, participating in college life so i think they're two very different endeavors and i think to complete them into one go-to practice which is or one so-called best practice template is is partial and 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 not the most valuable thing. Um, so I'm only assuming that the way it developed that way was through listening to certain voices. I have to say that it, it it dovetailed with certain interests, I would say, of the institutional military and the institutional state. So it does have some side effects of unquestioning um unquestioning support for the military. So while I don't know if that was the reason that these, I I would not think that these that is the reason that these, um, I don't have this conspiracy in my mind that, oh, the, the Department of Defense said, oh, we're going to develop services like this because that will not have people talk about the wars. I, I don't think that that's what happened. But I do think that there is there was, uh, you know, a situation where people were um, looking to veterans, to some veterans, to talk about what they think would be useful. And so that became the best practice, but it happened to exclude the experience of many, many others. And it also happened to, um, so this kind of way of valorizing the military and conflating military interests with student veteran interests ha- happened to coincide with a with a project of valorizing the military in general in our society. So that was... Uh, that was a side effect. I think it was a side effect rather than an intent from the beginning to develop these services, but that is the. Out- I still think it's the same outcome that we conflate. Student veterans' needs are conflated with the institutional military's needs. Well, you also go on to describe how, in addition to drawing on these organized resources that are provided on campus, students also forge their own diverse and creative strategies to adopt a post-military life um, as college students. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about some of those strategies that that the student veterans themselves created. Sure, sure. I mean, I think one of the, one of the, um, one of the, the, initiatives that happens often, either generated by students themselves or generated by the school, are the creation of veterans clubs. And and having a veterans club, a space where veterans can come, I think is a really great idea because often it it, um, it allows veterans to develop their own needs or identify their own needs and their own services. So um, that that is a sort of a uniform, um, it's not a uniform, but it's a, a typical... Move on college campuses to develop those spaces for veterans, and that's I think that's great. I think that many veterans on campuses where there's not a huge apparatus of support just by necessity seek out other veterans um, and offer support. One thing that I found across campuses was that there was a there was a, a strong sense among many student veterans of wanting to support each other. So that that kind of that is something that I think held over from their military training to think of themselves as a a body of people or of a group of people and to maybe minimize the the individual over the group. I saw that again and again that that even people that felt alienated from the campus veterans clubs because they felt like it was too too much of a military valence would develop Systems to help their own systems to help veterans identify what the g i bill meant to them and what they could spend and what they needed to do so i saw I saw incredible um efforts either individually or on campus to to help each other that to develop home-cooked dinners, invite any veteran to come over for home-cooked dinners, to come to Veterans Club meetings just when there was a crisis on campus, just to support their fellow veterans, even if they weren't regular members of the club. They just would say, I know know my brothers and sisters are suffering. I want to be here for them. So whenever there was, um, you know, something, if there was, sadly, you know, we know that the suicide rate among combat veterans is, is extremely high you know both on the battlefield and off and and if that happened on campus and and it did happen on campuses but veterans would come and to offer support whether or not they agreed with most of the people in the club it didn't matter in that moment it was just i want to be here to support my brothers and sisters so that was profoundly moving and i saw that come up in diverse ways whether it was having a night that was offered a home-cooked meal to people that didn't have families on campus, just to to come and and share informally or different kinds of social events um, to do. So I I saw that really strongly, that there was that kind of support, whether or not it was sanctioned by the university, whether or not it was um, perceived of as a a veteran support. It, It was offered individually and created by other people. I saw that women on campuses who are veterans often would develop their own internal support services because they tended not to be reflected in the in the official campus veteran discourse. There was a lot of gender differences, I, I found, and many women on campus felt kind of alienated from that or didn't feel like it was their space. So they would <clears throat> often wouldn't affiliate with the campus veterans clubs that tended to be male dominated by males Well, and I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. I, I was curious uh, what were some of the other ways that you saw that student veterans' experiences of college life or the way they the strategies they use to navigate through college life, how did those differ by gender or by race or, or other sorts of differences within the group of student veterans? Well, I think when when services are developed based on an idea. <laughs> based on an imaginary or an idea of what veterans are, who veterans are or what veterans want, that's going to create a set of services that caters to that imaginary or that idea of it. So for example, if veterans, student veterans are conceived of as normatively male and sort of interested in have positive associations with the military, there's going to be some services that are developed around that, that highlight the positive associations with the military and that, that reinforce those sort of military bonds or the bonds that were made in the military, maybe going out, organizing events to go out on the shooting range and, and shoot. And it doesn't mean that, that women don't like to shoot. I mean, there's many people, you know, like to shoot and like to do these different things, but not all of them. So there would be, uh outings organized tailgate parties um you know shooting range expeditions uh whereas you know that was interesting to some but it wasn't interesting to all and by often the the women that I spoke to an interesting thing is that while my my study and my semi-structured interviews started out always with their experience in the classroom if if veterans offered other information or started talking about something else I would follow that that line of questioning, and I would ask follow-up questions, and for the women almost almost exclusive, well almost always within ten or fifteen minutes, the conversation uh, came to some kind of sexual harassment or sometimes sexual assault that happened to them in the military, so that experience of sexual harassment, sexual uh, sometimes sexual assault was very present for many of the women, or at least being treated differentially and and treated worse. <laughs> Um, you know, treated as inferior, that theme came up again and again in my interviews with women. you know, without necessarily a particular rancor toward the military, but just that this was part of their experience For some, it was incredibly onerous and and difficult, and they did talk with that with that valence. but for many, it was just the fact of life in military, the way people are trained in the military to see feminine as as weaker as a threat, and so it was just sort of assumed as a part of military life, but when people got out of the military and wanted sort of to rearrange that social hierarchy, um, sometimes the organized veterans clubs were not as open to that rearrangement of the social hierarchy, and, and women felt excluded in, in that way in terms of the, the activities that were chosen, in terms of the language that was used in the meetings, in terms of the space for different ideas and different um, priorities offered. So. So what I found was that many women would find other outside sources of support. There's, there are non-affiliated um, veteran support services in San Francisco and in the Bay Area that women would gravitate to. And, and to their credit, those non-affiliated support services did develop specific support groups for women who have experienced military sexual trauma, what's known as MST, Um You know sexual harassment or assault more more specifically sexual assault in the military and so there were spaces created for those kind of discussions that were not i would say by and large not welcome in the veterans clubs and were there any other differences within veterans experience perhaps based on the conflicts in which they served or age or race or the sorts of educations they were pursuing in college there were for sure i um I'm trying to I'm trying to answer that question. yes, absolutely, there were people had different reasons, motivations for going, and you know including wanting to to having an understanding that they were defending the country against um enemies that and so that they had to go to these conflicts, so there were very different motivations for joining. Um, one of the threads, because I studied sort of a subset of a subset, I studied veterans who had enrolled in college and, and to some some extent veterans who had people who had enlisted in part for college benefits. That's definitely a subset of a subset of the enlistment population of the military, which is why I, I can't claim to speak for all veterans, but I can look at the people that I spoke to who really did they came back to college for different reasons. Some came because they wanted to make sense of their experience in, in the military and in combat and sort of understand that in a different way. Some, because they wanted to build on the experience that they had gained in their military um, careers, you know, so if they had learned, if they had been, some had been guards in prison camps and they thought it would be a very easy jump for them to just go and become a, um, to enter into the police academy and enter into law enforcement so they were looking to build on their military experience and other people were looking to completely break from that and understand what they had gone through through a different lens through a, a opening up their experience and and learning other things than than what they learned in the military and i can't i can't generalize with based on gender with that but but i There were, in general, I would say fewer sort of straight line pathways of continuing military uh, careers, maybe secret service or things like that available to women. And I I don't have actual evidence for that, so I should be careful about saying that. But it seemed like there were fewer women that were really interested in just going on and building on doing a civilian version of what they did in the military. In my experience, I I didn't see that as much, but, but I'm sure that exists somewhere. And, and I think that's that 's really interesting, and I think one of the the big contributions of your book is to sort of break down this imagined idea of, of what a veteran looks like and vet, what a veteran wants and what a veteran needs as they enter into um, institutions of academic life as opposed to military life um, so so I, I thank you but for sort of bringing that complexity to the conversation. And I, I think today you've given our listeners a really good sense of your book and of its arguments. And I, I'd like to know now, just for you, you know, what was the hardest part of writing this book? Well, honestly, the hardest part of writing it was was writing it. I mean, the the best part for me, I'll start out with what was most gratifying, what was most interesting and engaging for me, was talking to the veterans and really learning about their experience. So to start with what was the easiest part for me and the most gratifying was really hearing their experience. For me, that also informed my findings that I, I too had these ideas of what a veteran was and is and does and thinks. And and to hear this diversity of, of opinion, diversity of worldview was so refreshing and so um, gratifying. to to see, to really be able to talk to people and and hear their own perspectives. The fact that it kind of came up against not only my own um, previously held myths, but also to see those myths being perpetrated in the greater society was part of my finding that, that we all carry these ideas of what, you know, these essentialist ideas of what veterans are. But that's not really borne out. And so the answer to that is really talking to people. You know, we need to be able to talk to people and find out what their experience actually is. So so the best part about writing this book was doing the research and, and doing the interviews and, and finding that out. The hardest part was actually sitting down and trying to make um, these very wide-ranging interviews and, and wide-ranging thoughts of a diverse group of veterans try to make, A coherent narrative out of that and try to break it down so that it it tells a story that is, you know, somewhat linear (laughs) and understandable. So I think the hardest thing was trying to convey the stories of the veterans and, and put it in a context of social theory that did justice to their stories. I think that that was the hardest thing. I really was trying to be mindful of. Of that, and I wanted to not essentialize further because I think that was one of the problems that I was encountering: is that people felt like their their own experience was essentialized and and kind of instrumentalized to tell a story that wasn't theirs. Well, and if readers take home only one thing from your book, what what would you want it to be? Well, I guess I I can't just say it's one thing. I'm going to push it and ask for two things that they can that I can ask them to take home. I think the first thing would be to try to listen to the experience of people that um were developing services around and talking to, for example. Listen to the experience of the veterans. Ask them about their experience. Try to find out without preconceived notions about what they need. Try to find out what their struggles are. You know, their struggles might not be what we assume their struggles are. So engage in that dialogue. And get, people don't have to agree, but it's important to talk about it. So just engage in that dialogue. And the second thing I would ask that people take away from it is that the, the recognition that the loudest voice in the room is not always the most accurate voice in the room. And just because a message about what veterans want or what who veterans are, what they need, just because that's repeated it again and again, doesn't necessarily make it true. And that the way that we can um, really engage with this, if we really want to support people returning from the military and um, coming veterans is that we can listen to them and we can develop services based on what they tell us rather than based on perhaps what, what the institutional military would like us to believe or would, you know, what there's the common sense view of what veterans need. So that would be the two things is like, listen to veterans, the way that you develop services that are not just um, sort of common sense ideas is by talking to the, the, those most intimately involved in the project that talk to the veterans. I think those would be the, the two messages I have. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. And, and I know our listeners do too. And before I go, um, I'd love to know, what do you think your next project will be? Sure. I um, for the, Since early, since January of 2016, I have been working in an, a neighborhood in Oakland, California, that has one of the highest um populations of recent immigrants from Central America um, they've they've come here I um, for various reasons many many most seeking asylum in the United States so i'm I'm doing a study and'm researching the reasons that that they come to to the United States the reason that they go through the incredible trials of, of getting here and the difficulties and then what their experience is trying to settle in in California, in this moment of history, I got—I started this in early 2016. Uh, Donald Trump had begun, already begun his candidacy, and the rhetoric that was employed in, in the candidacy was very much had immigrants as central antagonists. And so, I'm studying about what that does to populations that are coming here seeking refuge and asylum, and, and what the, what that experience is like for them. So that's what I'm working on now. Well, that sounds like another timely and, and important book. So thank you very much. And I will look forward to reading that one when it comes out as well. Thank you.